Hey folks, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks for joining us. I'm David Golay, the host of the show and the bike editor at Blister. And I'm excited for this one because I'm joined by Payson McKelvin, who is here to talk about his soon-to-be-launched Crossing Tasmania film, in which he documents the 360-mile, 35,000-foot ride that he did in a single pull across Tasmania last fall. And, well, the physical feat of that crossing is extraordinary. The episode here, we get into it a whole lot more about the motivations for taking on these kind of crossings and Payson's done a couple of them now starting with Antarctica a couple of years ago and sort of how they are a useful thing for him from a enjoyment of riding bikes standpoint that is meant to be deliberately very distinct from his racing career and so we just get into it about how one goes about continuing to find joy in riding a bike when it is your full-time job and how the idea of doing something that is not a race is just appealing to someone in Payson's place. And he's got some really good stuff to say on the subject and just kind of also get into it about how he planned this route, which was not a standardized route or something that had been commonly done. And the, team that he had in Tasmania helping him out that kind of formed organically through some Strava searches and snowballed from there. And it's a cool story. Payson tells it really well, and I think you're going to enjoy it. But before we get into it, I do want to share a quick crashes and close calls story of my own. I was out for a ride today, kind of got a little bit offline in a corner that I know super well, but just misjudged and clipped a tree with my hand and well, I'm pretty sure that it's fine. If it's not feeling good tomorrow morning, I am just going to go get an x-ray because I've now got blister plus spot, which gives me $25,000 of per incident injury coverage anywhere in the world for a whole list of activities, including riding a bike, skiing, and a whole bunch more. The list is in this link in the show notes, and it's pretty exciting both because it has the potential to save folks a ton of money if they have a really serious injury that requires extensive care, but also means that in cases like mine right now, where you've got a minor injury that you'd probably shrug off and just let rest up on its own, you can now go get care, get it checked out, make sure things are okay without having to worry about the expense of it. So pretty excited for that. And like I said, well, I think I am in fact fine. It's good to have that peace of mind. So get that peace of mind for yourself sign up at the link in the show notes and well it's a pretty good program we've going here so with that let's get right to my conversation with Payson McKelvin well Payson great to sit down and chat how are you doing and where are you this morning um I'm doing mostly well I mean I'll keep it real I'll be honest I've, I've had a couple of pretty rough race weekends last two weekends um but as of yesterday i'm back home in durango colorado which is nice it's being back here we live uh, about 20 minutes outside of town up high at about 75 7600 feet in the pine trees so even when other things are kind of meh uh being here at home especially this time of year early may is a pretty guaranteed way to get back on track that's good glad you're getting back to some normalcy there and not to make you rehash it too much, but want to give us just a quick recap of the last couple of races. 
Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a quickish recap, I guess. So quick thumbnail sketch is um, kind of what I base my season around these days. It's what's called the Lifetime Grand Prix, which is a seven round off-road endurance race series. Um, kind of spans the whole season from April through October and has a bunch of different style events like the Leadville 100 Unbound. It's kind of a mix of gravel and mountain bike. Um, and, uh, had a, had a strong year last year, but, uh, we have this guy in our, in our, uh, peer group these days, who's really dominating things. And so I made the tough decision turning 30 this year to kind of flip over a couple more rocks and see if we could find that last percentage point to, to kind of contend with Keegan, um, Keegan, this is Keegan Swenson, um, who's kind of had a stranglehold on the scene for the last year or two. Um, and so I changed coaches for, for the, for the first time in 15 years. And so training has looked completely different and anytime, you know, you change something foundationally that much, there's question marks and excitement and question marks kind of at the same time, the unknown is, is extra scary. I think for athletes, a lot of times, um, and I, my first race of the year went awesome, felt superb. And then the last two races, which was the, uh, the Sea Otter classic and the whiskey off-road uh, we're just kind of like the polar opposite, just totally did not feel myself. So, um, having bad races is a hundred percent part of the game. Like pretty much no matter who you are, uh, it happens. Um, but just kind of with these added variables of making some changes this year, there's just sort of some extra question marks. And this is kind of the, the like less talked about athletic side where you kind of go home and you like, have your tail between your legs and you got to roll up your sleeves and and figure some things out. And hopefully you'll be posting cool Instagram updates about winning races again soon. But until that happens, it'll probably be a lot less interesting. Right. <laughs> and I mean, you know, they, like you sort of said, they basically definitionally can't all be your best ones. Right. So that is definitely part of it, but I can understand how having a couple of not great races with the changes in training and everything hanging over you feeling like a particularly burdensome state of affairs. So here's to hoping kind of figure out what you need to do and get things going there. And, um, but well, we're kind of here to talk about something decidedly distinct from your racing endeavors and, uh, which is your crossing Tasmania short film that will be coming out sometime soon here. And first, let's just kick it off by having you give us a little bit of a recap of what that project was in broad strokes. It's kind of a, a continuation of a project we did in fall of 2021. And, and at the time, I didn't really realize that doing the ride across Iceland, which was sort of the first version of what we did, was in a way kind of a response to racing, almost a little bit of a response to what we just talked about. Uh, as an athlete, as a racer, I should say, you're so, and I assume other, other athletes and other bike athletes too, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the folks that do like rampage or, you know, uh, anyone who feels a lot of pressure and is pushing the envelope of what they can do. Um, it's, it's, it can be tiring to spend your life kind of on that edge, I guess. Um, especially when it's competitive. And so a lot of times I find myself just getting um, like my entire world kind of revolves around time, you know, whether it's 
a race, which obviously the whole point of a race is doing the ride as short as you possibly can, um, or just all the scheduling obligations of an event like Sea Otter. You know, you go to that event for five or six days and pretty much sun up to long after sundown is just like, all right, what's next? What's next? What's what's next? Um, what are, what are we trying to avoid being late to here? Um, and so after a while, you kind of realize that you're missing out on a lot of the rest of life and growing up, uh, in the early days when I was really, uh, revering or, or dreaming about a career like this, but having no idea what it meant. Um, I, you know, I wish I could go back and tell my younger self kind of what it was about. Cause it is awesome. It is absolutely, absolutely the dream career. Wouldn't trade it for anything, but there are definitely trade-offs too. And one of those trade-offs, um, is, is for me just like this incredible, incredibly like strict, um, relationship with time a lot of times. So rewinding when, when I did a first coast to coast across Iceland in 2021. It was just a cool opportunity that came about kind of piggybacking off of another trip that we were doing, uh, with Lael Wilcox and Chris Burkhard, kind of a bike packing trip. Um, and it was such an incredible bike experience, um, that as soon as we finished, I started looking around, uh, maps, you know, where else would this sort of thing make sense? Cause it was pretty much the coolest bike thing I'd ever gotten to do. Um, and the original premise for the Iceland one was, uh, can you ride across Iceland in less than a day? Um, and so there was still like that time element. There was very much a competitive drive. And then moving forward towards this Tasmanian project, um, after we kind of narrowed it on Tasmania being the place we wanted to do this, uh, take this concept next, um, there was already an established route there called the Tasmanian Trail, which is a little under 300 miles, super challenging. Um, but you could probably do it on a gravel bike and this go around. I was just looking for a different experience. I wanted something that pretty much necessitated a mountain bike and, you know, would let me use my handling skills more and, and just kind of have fun, uh, on even more of an adventure style long ride. Um, and so I met this young, uh, this young woman there in Tasmania, who's sort of the, the queen of bike packing, And she, we were bouncing ideas back and forth. And she was like, you know, the Tasmania trail is cool, but it misses out on a lot of Tasmania's most awesome natural aspects and terrain and all that sort of thing. So we started making our own original route and, uh, kind of slowly, but surely she was like, oh, but if you go over here, you know, you can hit this insane section of single track. And if you go over here, you know, you can get up to this high point and see, you know, like to the coastline of, of Tasmania, have an amazing view. And so before I knew it, um, we had a 360 mile route instead of 290. And all of a sudden it was like, uh, I don't know if this is doable in less than a day. And she was like, no way it's doable <laughs> in less than a day, no chance. And so that was kind of the first step where I started trying to have a different experience, started trying to let go of, of time a little bit, which I really haven't done. Like my bike experience is always based on time. Like I've said in the past. So it became this, I'm sure we'll get into it more, but it became this like letting go process of having a different bike experience. And again, like there wasn't a grand scheme for these coast to coast missions to be that, but they sort of have evolved into that, um, and been a really awesome break from, from racing. Yeah. Uh, and that bit about letting go of the time aspect of it is definitely something that I want to get into more in a minute here. But before we do, I would be curious just to hear a little more about how you a wound up 
choosing Tasmania as the destination for round two. And then along with that, kind of what the process of building out this new route with Emma was like, because, you know, like you said, it wasn't as if you just went and picked up a well-established route and like, okay, I'm going to go ride that. Boom. Where did you go about, yeah, picking Tasmania in the first place and then meeting Emma and building it all out from there? Yeah. So like I said, well, actually the globes right here on my bike, on my back, right shoulder. Um, basically we got home and started <laughs> putting little dots on the globe. Um, at a basic level, it's kind of like the, the list, the list is pretty long, but it's not like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at a globe and be like, Oh, that's about the right size. That's about the right size. They're, you know, typically needs to be an island basically. Um, and there's, there's probably more than most people would think off the top of their head of places that are islands that are about the same size of Iceland. Um, which for reference is, I think Tasmania in terms of square mileage is about the same as like Wisconsin, just as a reference point. Um, so, uh, I have this list and then it becomes sort of this combination of what am I interested in? And then also what makes sense from a funding standpoint, because making films, even just 20 minute ones like this is unbelievably expensive. I learn something every time I, I do a production like this. And one of them is just how expensive it is to do right. Um, and so there's a lot of different variables in there, like what brands maybe have some sort of alignment with a place or, uh, what place has a route that would allow me to use or would be a great showcase of a certain kind of equipment that could help with some funding. Like there's all these little nitty gritty kind of professional pieces that, um, maybe aren't like super romantic, but are definitely a reality of, <laughs> of making these things happen. Um, Tasmania was near, near the top of my list because, it feels like a place that's forgotten often. Like the more research I did, the more I kept hearing from mainland Australians that like Australia, people from Australia will literally forget to put Tasmania on an Australian map. Like it's just this island down there in the Southeast kind of hanging out by itself. There's absolutely nothing to the South of it, except Antarctica, nothing to the West except Patagonia, like however many tens of thousands of kilometers away. Um, but at the same time, it has an incredibly unique natural environment from what I've heard um, or from what I had heard. And so it was near the top of the list. And then a race promoter actually reached out uh, from Southern Australia, wondering if I was willing to do a gravel race he had uh, that he was putting together. Um, and that was sort of like the, okay, we're going to write this in pen. We're going to go do, instead of pencil, you know, we're going to go do this gravel race. Um, and then go down to Tasmania afterward, spend a few weeks doing this project. Um, ironically enough, the trip for the gravel race fell through, but we were already kind of committed to Tasmania. So it ended up being the perfect sort of baited hook. But um, that's kind of how I guess we decided on Tasmania next. But it wasn't an easy decision because I have a good, I don't know, probably 10 on the list at this point, like 10 solid. This really makes sense and I want to do it type thing. You know, when I watched the film and you sort of mentioned that bit about just pulling the globe out and spinning around and seeing what, like you said, just seems like the right size. I actually went and 
spent a few minutes in Google Earth doing that same exercise the other night, just kind of out of curiosity. And there's some options. Like like you said, there are there are a lot of little islands out there in the world. And so it all kind of adds up to there being a fair number of them in total. Totally. Yeah. And it's fun to um because it, it sort of gives you some perspective about these places. Like you you have to do a lot of research. And I can get pretty obsessive about things, but especially for whatever reason right now, these crossings. And so there was going back to the Grand Prix for a minute during the fifth round of the Grand Prix last year, which was a, a race actually in Wisconsin. Um, I think we were like an hour out from race start. Like I should have been getting dressed, getting ready for my warm up. And I literally was on Google Maps of Tasmania, just like going through it with a fine tooth comb. Um, it just totally consumes me. And then when you have, I mean, our, our planet is just ridiculous, obviously, like the sheer diversity. Um, it's such, it sounds even dumb to say it's so obvious, but it's such an incredible place to explore. Humans are so lucky. Um, and so once you start, once you have like a, a specific process and you're actually researching something that has a common thread, you can start to kind of compare them. For example, I was looking at uh, Tanzania, which often gets confused with Tasmania because they sound similar, but it's off, off the eastern coast of Africa, big, big island. And I was like, that looks maybe about the right size. And I mapped it and it was like 1600 miles north to south or something. I was like, well, that's not happening in a single push. And so you kind of start to get some perspective or you go over and you know look at Hawaii and it's like, whoa, those islands are actually really small. Um, if we were going to do something, like probably the option would be, could we figure out how to ride coast to coast across all islands and orchestrate some sort of like ferry or boat situation to hop from island to island and do all that in a, a single go? So you start to have all of these really fun discovery experiences. Um, that I've gotten really hooked on too. Yeah, that does sound pretty fun. And to bring it back around though, to the route planning, once you had settled on Tasmania though, so you, well, I guess, yeah, how did you meet Emma in the first place? And then what did your process of developing this route look like? Because obviously you have her as kind of the local expert on the ground, but presumably you're doing this remotely and without your own familiarity of Tasmania or what you're looking at. And so what did that whole process look like? Yeah. So that's kind of a fun story. So one of the things that I've really come to appreciate about these projects is that you're really in a way forced to immerse yourself in the place before you even get there. Like you have to, I guess the first lesson for this was with, with Iceland, I sort of had this five-star tour guide in Chris Burkhardt who has, he lives there most of the, or half the year. He's been there like upwards of 40 times. I think he's ridden across Iceland all sorts of different directions, you know, on bikepacking trips and all that sort of thing. So he was really kind of like a cheat code for, for doing this first one. Um, but we had this crazy wrinkle like 36 hours out where there was a, a thermal vent that had like an, an eruption underneath a glacier um, and created this massive flood that wiped out part of my original route. And so we got news of this and Iceland, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but Iceland is, is, one of the coolest places I've been because it, for a lot of reasons, but one of the things is they live on such a, the, the people there live on such a vile, volatile Island that there's this real cooperation that's required. Um, and so for example, if there's a unique weather event or earthquake event, volcanic event, something like that, um, the communication network is just like 
really fast and has to be. Um, and so we knew that this had happened really quickly and immediately we started tapping into our communication network that we developed there, talking to local bike riders, local bike shops, tour guides, like what, what's another option here? Like we're 36 hours out from this ride and we have to change the route. How are we going to do that? And so we pulled it off, but it was this really cool collaborative experience where it was like, we super can't do this alone. Like we have to rely on the people that actually live here. Um, and that's the way it should be. Um, and so having had that lesson, I really wanted to apply that more preemptively to Tasmania and really lean into it and make that almost as much of the experience as the actual bike ride. Um, so from very early on, we started putting feelers out there, like who, what friends of friends do we know down there who are kind of the, the local movers and shakers who has a lot of experience riding down there. Um, but Emma was like a very much a, a needle in a haystack, but she was the perfect person for this. And the way it came about is I was looking at the Tasmania trail and uh, I, I could, I was trying to get a feel for the terrain. And there was this one absolutely massive drop in that was like a 3,500 foot descent in a few miles. And it seemed like most people walked it um, that did the Tasmania trail. And there were only, I don't know, like 15 people on the Strava segment. I was like, that's, that's weird. Like, Maybe this route is super legit. Um, and then I would look at a couple other Strava segments that were a little off the beaten path because I was kind of starting to try to make a variation route of my own based off the Tasmania Trail that would sort of like um, make a, a mountain bike make sense because I really wanted to ride a mountain bike this time. And I kept coming across these Strava segments that have have like five people on them, eight people on them, four people on them. And usually that's when you know you're in a pretty cool place. Like that's a, these days, that's a that's a dead giveaway that you're, you're in a cool zone. Um, and there was this name that just kept coming up on all the Strava, Strava segments. And Emma Flukes was literally on every single Strava segment, even if there was just three people on it. And I was like, who is this? And I started clicking on some of her rides and she just does these massive rides. Um, and I clicked on one and it was a coast to coast. And I was like, son of a bitch, someone's already done this. No way. And it's this little five foot one spitfire of a lady who's a a marine biologist. And like, I just kind of started doing a little lurking, you know, a little background. And I was like, this seems like someone who could really unlock um, a lot of what we we need to know. Is she going to be interested? Maybe she's one of those bikepacking folks that's like, no, like, no, uh, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm not going to give away any of my secrets, but she was really kind of the opposite. Um, and so we had some zoom calls and she was basically the one that was like, you know what? Tasmania is in my opinion, the coolest place in the world. And if you're going to come all the way down here to do this, I want to make sure this is the best possible experience that you can have. And for her, uh, fortunately, what that also means is making it insanely hard. And I say fortunately, because at this point, that's the experience that I also want. And so we just kept tacking stuff on. And she was like, you know, if you start on the west side, you can start in this area called Arthur River, which is this tiny little beach community. Um, and that uh, there's a point on that beach called Edge of the World, because if you draw a line, you don't hit anything until uh, Patagonia in South America. And it's the largest uninterrupted um basically expansive ocean. And because of that and the combination of these roaring 40 uh, prevailing winds, 
the cleanest air in the world is right there in Arthur River. It's like, well, that's amazing. I want to experience that. I want to see what it feels like to breathe the cleanest air in the world. So we kind of anchored that as our start point. And then one of the largest subtropical rainforests is right there too, too called the Tarkeen. Obviously, it'd be incredible to ride through that. And so we just kind of started adding all this stuff on. Um, and it turned into the, you know, just absolute monster route that it finally became. Yeah. And so I guess I'm sort of curious from piggybacking off of that, to what extent were you sort of coming at it from the perspective of like thinking through there's like this cool thing I want to see here and this other one over here and then this one over here and shit, how am I going to link these together? Or is that because you ended up with something that is extremely different from the Tasmania trail, which runs north to south and your route was much more west to east. And so kind of what was the process of pinning all those bits together like and were there any particular bits where you're like well i really want to go here and here and the thing in the middle doesn't work shit how do i figure this out totally well um i i have to give most of the credit to emma honestly um basically what the way it would work is we kind of started with a with it was four options and the amount of work that she spent or the amount of time she spent working on this was really, really incredible. And I, I just can't thank her enough. Um, but basically she was like, here's four options based on, you know, going far North kind of middle swooping South. Um, and the other element was how much pavement do we want? Cause one of the really unique aspects of Iceland is the entire interior is not paved but most places have a decent amount of paved roads. Tasmania um, has relatively few paved roads, but its interior isn't like, doesn't look like, you know, something out of the Lord of the Rings or like, you know, Star Wars Hoth zone with volcanoes and everything going off. Like you can pave a road and have it survive, which is not the case in Iceland. So with Iceland, like it was guaranteed that it was going to be super gnarly and off-road the whole way across, but it was gravel bikeable. With Tasmania, you can do a coast-to-coast crossing on paved road on a road bike for sure. But I definitely didn't want to do that, obviously. Um, And so it was kind of this balance of how much pavement versus gravel road, dirt road, backcountry, double track, single track. What do all those ingredients look like? How long is too long? Um, what can I actually finish in a single push? Because, you know, these really start to get to the limit of what I can do physically and mentally, you know, if it was 425 miles, I probably couldn't do it in a single go on this kind of train. So basically over the course of man, two or three months, uh, we would just with a fine tooth comb kind of make decisions. And some mornings I'd wake up and she'd be like, I just thought about this. And she'd send me like just a 27 kilometer chunk of a route that was like, you could do this and this is what it's like. And here's a couple of photos because she has ridden almost everything on the Island. Uh, one thing that I was kind of proud of is that there are a couple of zones that she'd actually never ridden, um, that we ended up putting in there. And one of them, we didn't explain it too much in the film, but I nicknamed it the Waratah snake pit. Cause it's right before kind of the first town that I go through at like mile 105, 110, I want to say, and there's a paved road that goes straight to this town, or you can do this jog. That's kind of a loop out that adds, I don't know, 10 miles or so it adds 10 miles, but also adds 7,000 or 700 feet of climbing, but it's like swampy, deep kind of rainforest vibes. I think there was an old mine down there back in the day. No one really goes down there anymore. Um, and I was 
pretty concerned about whether it even go through since Emma had never done it. And so I think five or six days out, um, I just cruised down there. And when I got down into the bottom bit, there's just, you're, you literally have to ride through a little riverbed, the whatever trail or double track used to be there is totally gone. So I'm riding through this riverbed and there's these big piles of like, you know, debris sticks and logs and stuff. And, um, I was like, man, if I was a tiger snake, this is where I would hang out for sure. <laughs> and within 30 seconds, there's just a massive tiger snake just basking in the sun on top of this big pile of wood that I literally have to ride straight up and over. And I was like, you know what? I'm just, I don't have to keep going today. In five days, I will have to keep going. Today, I don't have to keep going. And right now, I just don't feel like continuing to go. So I turned around and I went back up. And ever since then, it was like, or since that moment until I did the ride, it was sort of this thing in the back of my mind where I was like, all the locals tell me that these tiger snakes are relatively shy. Like if they see you or hear you coming, they'll usually take off. But I know how potent they are and they're big and they look super scary and they look exactly like the shadows. And uh, it just got in my head. But anyway that's that's another tangent we can go on but long story short it was just this long two or three month process of here's a cool thing here's a cool thing here's a cool thing and that's how we got to 360 miles when it easily could have been like 280 <laughs> well so i guess how i was going to ask how much kind of pre-scouting and riding of it you did beforehand you mentioned that one little segment was that about it or were there other bits and pieces that you went and checked out ahead of time um well one other thing that might not be as known about uh, the the film aspect of these things is that um, it's virtually impossible to cover them well with a camera, period. Um, and so in order to get some of the really beautiful cinematic shots, like big wide drone shots, some of the B-roll, actually all the B-roll, so all the really nice nature shots like waterfalls or you know, the shot of the wombat running or just some of the beautiful landscape stuff. Uh, we have to get that in the days beforehand or even sometimes the days afterward. Um, and so we had between all of that, between scouting and actually shooting little B-roll inserts and stuff, we probably had 10 days of shooting mostly before. And then a couple short ones after we were just so, to we were hoping to get more after, but we were just so toast. We couldn't, didn't have the energy. Um, and so there was sort of some like accidental scouting that would go on, but the scouting was as much for the film crew as it was for me to see the route. And I would almost prefer to not see most of it um, <clears throat> just because that discovery experience is one of the things that has me totally hooked on this. And it's completely opposite to racing where you go and you preview the course and you practice everything and um, everything's very managed. Um so I don't know percentage wise how much of the route I saw beforehand, but it was very mm -hmm. little. <laughs> yeah, that bit about just not having seen too much of it ahead of time, making for a better experience very much makes sense. And that was kind of why I wanted to get at that a little bit, because like you said, sort of in a way, filming it is a little runs a little bit counter to that experience of just being out in the middle of nowhere by yourself and doing the ride and um but something that you did mention in the film that i think was interesting was just that um sort of in contrast to iceland there were 
very large segments of this route that just weren't accessible by roads. And so you kind of were able to film the bits and pieces in between, but by necessity, there were very large swaths of it where you were on your own doing your own thing. And, um, you know, frankly, for kind of the goals of the whole deal, that sounds like kind of a more fun and nice way to do it. So yeah, that all certainly resonates. And so I guess let's just get to the uh, day of kind of take us from the beginning. How'd things go? Yeah. Um, how did things go? That's a good question. Um, I mean, it, again, it was one of the coolest bike experiences I've ever had. Probably the only thing that's harder that I've tried to do uh, was the Colorado Trail back during the pandemic in 2020 when I was grossly unprepared for that sort of adventure and just survived mostly the majority of the time and, and suffered like I, I never have and hope never to again. But this was up there. This was like a fairly close second. Um, the route was just unbelievably hard. Um, yeah. For, for those that uh, haven't seen the, the uh, Strava ride or, won't see the film. It was 360 miles, but had almost 35,000 feet of climbing. So back, especially during the pandemic, like Everesting was this big thing, you know, and it's freaking hard, like doing an Everesting on a paved road where you go up and down the same climb is hard physically and tough mentally. Uh, doing it on all kinds of crazy terrain is really, really hard. <clears throat> doing it with a loaded bike adds an element of challenge, but Doing it by accident <laughs> is uh, a whole other thing where you just ride a route and it happens to be an Everesting plus 7,000 feet. Like that's pretty unusual. And that was daunting. The thing that I didn't have a huge appreciation for going in, I guess, was how backloaded that climbing was too. I think there was something like 11,000, 12,000 feet of climbing the last hundred miles, something like that. Um, and it was just raw. Like it was... Uh, <clears throat> there were very few easy miles. There's a section kind of like right after Deloraine, which was my second refuel point that was pretty flat pavement for, I don't know, 30 or 40 miles. And it was in the middle of the night, which was nice. And it was just this like momentary, it was like an intermission almost. Obviously I was still super tired and you have to be on high alert because there's so much wildlife there that you have to be dodging, you know, kangaroos, wallabies, wombats constantly. Um, but it was definitely sort of this reset. Um, but I would say overall in terms of just how it went, like it was so diverse. Um, I just got to see so much. It was absolutely scary at times. <clears throat> um, you know, fording, fording, uh, waist deep rivers in the middle of the night when you've already seen three tiger snakes and you know, they like hanging out by water and you can't see anything and you're exhausted and like almost out of food. Like those, that stuff's hard for sure. Um, but the kind of the crazy thing that happened this ride that I haven't had that I haven't ever experienced before is it was so hard and I had to say no to quitting so many times that a certain, it feels like at a certain point, your brain just gives into the fact that like, you're just not going to stop potentially ever. Like you're on some sort of weird survival mission and no matter how gnarly a climb, no matter, you know, how deep a river crossing, whatever it is, 
you're just going to keep going no matter how deep the exhaustion is. And so when I finally did reach the end, when it felt like the route literally would never end and it would never stop getting harder, when I finally did hit that beach and, and the water there, it felt so weird to be done. It was like my my new reality had become this, I was like a perpetual motion machine almost, like nothing, literally nothing could stop me. And then when I hit that water and like I had to be done, it felt like awkward is the word that comes to mind for some reason. So um, as unbelievable as the riding was and everything that I saw, probably the craziest experience of it all is just where it takes your your mind. You really do like enter different planes of consciousness in a way. <laughs> yeah. And I thought the note that you said kind of on the beach there when you were finishing it was it was interesting that you had sort of been through this big emotional roller coaster in the hours preceding that and then showed up on the beach we're done and we're like oh i actually feel kind of blank right now well, i'm not sure if that was exactly your words but it was something to that effect and um kind of what would you attribute that to was it just sort of the sheer exhaustion and being so spent that you didn't have the bandwidth to really emote too much about it at that point or what was it yeah it's hard to say it's really hard to say like it, being um super uh like romantic about it i like to say that it's i like to think that maybe finishing was almost a letdown because it was the first time where i truly like truly, truly been in the moment where the moment was the entire objective because I'm so used to racing where the finish line is the objective and you're just trying to be done as fast as you can. And so it it sounds totally counterintuitive to be in so much discomfort, to be just at the depths of exhaustion, but still it's exactly where you wanted to be and to almost have a little bit of disappointment when it was done. Like it sounds almost impossible. And when I think back to just how much I was suffering, it's hard for me to even say that out loud because it does seem impossible. But I think, I think they're like deep down somewhere, like in those, during that ride, like it just challenged me in all the different ways that I'd worked really hard to, um, like, I just felt like I was at my best at, at a, at a, as a human, like I was at my best during that ride. From a toughness standpoint, physical abilities, technical abilities, you know, self-preservation, and then also just appreciation for what you're doing, appreciation of the place, all that sort of thing. Um, and so to have that stop, I think it, like I think transitions are always hard no matter no matter what it is. Um, and a transition, a transition like that, where no matter what forward progress will not be stopped. You will not let forward progress stop happening to sorry, forward progress has to stop now, no matter what there is an ocean. Um, that was just a, a, a really heavy moment. Um, and one that sort of left me at a loss, like at the moment, like I didn't know how to process that. And then also I think just the complete emotional, like, I don't know chemically what all happens in your body to create emotions, but I'm sure all of those tanks of, uh, you know, emotional, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Whatever, whatever capacity I had 
to have emotions was just like empty. <laughs> it had all been left out on the course, I think is, is some of what was happening too. Yeah, that was kind of what I meant by that. And that makes sense in a way that just you'd gone through so much over that. Was it 32 and a half hours roughly? And um, just wasn't, wasn't anything left to, to give at that point. Um, and I guess on that timing note, you know, we touched on this a little bit earlier about you were, you know, primarily a professional racer and are experiencing bikes through that lens. And you talked about wanting these sorts of projects to be something wholly distinct from that, where time's not the point and you're not um, trying to have that sort of experience against the clock. You're do just doing something very different, very deliberately. Uh, but I thought it was funny that despite sort of the best of intentions there, some of the racer kind of still crept in and early in the film, you're talking like, well, I didn't think doing this in 24 hours was possible, but I'm on pace for it. So what if I just go blow everybody's mind right now? And what take us through kind of thought process there and going through the kind of mental back and forth of having those thoughts creeping in. And I don't know, were you trying to tamp them down and be like, no, 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 this isn't the point here. Or did you let yourself get taken up by that a little bit? What was that like? Yeah, that was definitely that was definitely one of the many wrestling matches during the ride. Um, it's I, I think uh, it's just uh, doing these rides has helped me have um, take honest stock of myself in so many ways because it holds up a bit of a mirror. And I think when you're in a routine and you you uh, you get good at something, you start to take the ways you do it for granted in a way like. I know what training rides I need to do to be fit. I know like exactly where I like to go get food in the Denver airport. Cause I do it a million times a year. Like you, you just get really comfortable in these things. Um, and then especially in this modern age where there can be so much positive reinforcement, especially online where, you know, if you're, if you're someone that's, uh, doing well at something, there's no shortage of people that's going to be like, yeah, you're doing well at this. And they'll just keep telling you, you know, and there's a there's a human thing there that sort of like pushes a button, I think, psychologically that in the moment feels good, but it's not necessarily where you get growth. <laughs> um, and so doing something like this crossing, like forces me to grow and forces me to really kind of self-analyze um, and, and get in touch with some things. And and one of them is, you know, I like to think that I have balanced perspectives and have other interests and spend time outside of my focus on racing. But the truth is to get for me, at least to get to the level that I've gotten to in racing, like you have to be so obsessive and you have to push so many other things out and you miss, like I've said before, you miss out on, on a lot of other aspects of life and you also miss out on other ways of thinking, not just other experiences, but other ways of thinking and I guess until I'd done this ride and during the ride, I, I didn't quite totally have a grasp for just how narrow my bike experience is typically. Like the way I ride the bike is so performance oriented, even when I'm not trying to have it be that way. Um, so 
even though I told myself beforehand I wasn't going to go after 24 hours, I have, you know, a Garmin on my handlebars. It's like, you're averaging 15 miles an hour and you're, you know, however many miles in. Um, and I can't help but do the math and be like, I'm ahead of 24 hour pace right now and almost be frustrated by it. But I can't, I also can't get myself to slow down. Like people who see the film or will have seen photos will see that, you know, I'm wearing kind of performance oriented apparel and and bike. Like I had arrow bars, had an arrow helmet. Like the stuff looks like I'm trying to go fast, the stuff I'm using. And some of that was just, it's, it's what I felt like I needed. I, I needed that extra hour, hour and a half, two hours of performance gain from that sort of equipment because I wasn't sure I could do the ride. Like if the ride, like I said, if the ride had been 37 hours, I don't know if I would have made it. 38 hours, I don't know if I would have made it. And that equipment does shave time, big time. Um, but also it's just all I know. It's what is comfortable to me. Um, and and so there was this push-pull, this like tug of war during and... <clears throat> when the route in the second in, in the second like two thirds really started to get harder and harder and my average speed just kind of started to fall apart it was almost a relief because i could let go of this draw but it was a lesson it was like if if there is some sort of performance oriented athletic carrot some sort of incentive at this stage of my life, I don't know that I can actually turn it off. It's almost like it has to get taken away from me just because I've spent so many years just like, I don't know, doggedly chasing that sort of thing. So um, I don't know that it's good. I think it's definitely a trade-off, but doing these sorts of rides, it, it, I'm more motivated than ever to have these sorts of bike experiences because I think it's forcing me to live a little bit more broadly, I guess. Yeah, I think that thought's really interesting in that, on one hand, having that drive to chase the performance goal, whatever it might be, is sort of necessary in your line of work. You know, it's you can't lack that and be successful as a racer. But at the same time, it's mentally very difficult. And uh, at some point, you know, you're everyone ages you're you know these things slip away from us at some point and the battle of kind of figuring out how to move on from no longer being able to perform to the level that we're accustomed to whenever that may come is a difficult thing and uh so i'm curious kind of what your thoughts are on what you took away from this particular experience because it sounds like you had some greater realizations along those lines than you did in the Iceland one, for example. It's, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong there, but. And so what do you feel like you sort of took away from this as far as continued goals for either these sorts of crossings again or even a broader spectrum of things that you want to do on a bike? I think one of the biggest things that I came away with um, was just an appreciation for kind of what I was saying earlier about the the collaboration that's required. Seeing Tasmania was was unreal. Um, I'm so grateful to have that opportunity, but the 
the little friendships that we forged that were kind of required to make the project happen are something that I think I'll value even more. Um, and it's, um, you know, in, in the scheme of things, so there were, there were kind of two, two main guys, two main local guys. Emma was sort of like this overarching person that helped make it happen from a route standpoint and concept standpoint. But in terms of real on the ground help, um, there are these two guys, uh, Pete and Gareth who are both local cyclists in Tasmania, just unbelievably good guys. And in the scheme of things, we didn't spend that much time with them. I think, you know, all told it was like 10 days, 12 days, something like that. But the, the extreme experience that we had together was just so bonding. Um, and I mean, both of those guys cried at some point, you know, and, and they're, you know, just hard nosed, hardworking dudes in in their late thirties, forties. And even though they weren't the one doing the bike ride and they were literally on their home Island, a place that they know very well, like it was such a rich experience for them, um, that they were really brought to some emotional places that I th- think they probably didn't expect. And the whole, I think the whole, the whole team kind of felt that way in some regard at some point. Um, and it kind of goes against like that sort of, I'm going to use the word team again, that sort of like cooperative effort really goes against a lot of the ethos of what, uh, a lot of ultra cyclists go for. Cause it is totally an oxymoron. Like you're, I wanted to do this thing self-supported, right? So if I ran out of food and water before I got to a little town, it was kind of like, well, too bad. You know, I wasn't going to take any support from, from the crew, uh, whether they happen to be at a, you know, a a spot filming at a, at a helpful time or not. Um, but at the same time, I, I, we could not have made, I could have gone on the bike ride on my own for sure, but we could not have made this, this film, uh, without them. And I wouldn't have had a cool, as cool a route without them either. Um, it was, you know, local knowledge that really made the route what it was. And so I guess to kind of like say it more succinctly, like these collaborative relationships are something that I didn't expect to be as great a highlight as they've become. And for the next one, I I want to further lean into that and make them a bigger part of the story. We tried to, to an extent in this one, but we're, you know, fairly limited by the, the, the footage we got. Um, but just do more, do more character development there and, and like, um, introduce other people to the world too. You know, it's, it's cool when an athlete goes out and does something crazy, but it's really the human stories that I think are the ones that have the greatest impact things that a a large group of people can actually relate to and kind of apply to their own lives. Um, and so we tried to go for that. Some in this story, tried to humanize it a bit more rather than like, Whoa, you know, athlete does crazy thing. Cause there's a million of those films out there. It's really easy to make those movies. Um, and I, I just don't really want to make those movies anymore. Um, and so for the next one, that'll be a goal. Um, and then also just really showcasing, like doing some character development of the place itself. Like I think, you know, Tasmania was showcased really nicely here, but leaning a little bit more into like the history of a place, um, and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, yeah, kind of adding another dimension for the next one, the writing, the writing, the route, all of that, like that comes like 
pretty much if you do a point to point route anywhere, it's going to be cool. Like even, even if I have a car left at the airport or something and I have to go pick it up and I ride from my house to the airport, it feels cool just to like have a ride that has a mission from, from A to B. When you get to do that on a big scale in a place you've never been and just spend a whole bunch of hours in a row in discovery mode, that is like the coolest thing. But that uh, almost sort of takes care of itself. And so where I want to do more work and like really roll up our sleeves and kind of uh, apply some effort is more um, in the storytelling aspect and like the relationship development aspect so that I can <clears throat> say I went to, you know, X place and I feel like I'm part of it now. Like that's really what I want to achieve. I like that thought a lot. And like you said, there are just a functionally infinite number of videos of an athlete doing something wild. And so having something that goes a little deeper than that and showcases you doing something hugely impressive, but doesn't fully center it around that and also gets into the place you're in and the people who made it all possible, I think makes for a richer, more interesting story. So I like that thought a lot and looking forward to seeing what you cook up next there. Um, and I think that's a pretty good place to wrap it up. So thanks so much for the time. It's been a lot of fun and the film's really cool. Looking forward to having that out in the world and getting more people to see it. It'll be available very soon. I'm told. Yeah. 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 Thanks man. Probably another week or two. We're just trying to finalize a couple last hosting things, but, um, certainly in may at some point yeah well stay tuned for that it'll be coming up real quick here and Jason, thanks again this has been great yep thanks david that was fun all right that's it for this edition of bikes and big ideas and i would of course love to say thanks again to Payson for the excellent conversation and as always thanks to taylor ahern for producing the episode I'd also like to say thanks to you for listening and from all of us at blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll be back again with you next week. Bye everybody.